me. It's been pretty cold and pretty rainy all month, but uh, now it's June and it's still in the 80s and pretty nice. Anyway, this is the sixth Sabbath and the count of seven towards Pentecost. So Pentecost will be a, a week from this coming Sunday, getting very close. Uh, next Sabbath, of course, being the seventh or 49th day. Uh, we also have a new moon this uh, week. We will have a Bible study Monday evening. Uh, I have some guests here Monday evening from Seoul, South Korea. First time I've had anyone from that country. And uh, I don't know whether they would like our Christian Bible study or not. <laughs> don't know what their religious persuasion is. So uh, I asked Gloria if we might could have Bible study over there. She has plenty of seating for everyone. And she thought that would be fine. So... Uh, how much trouble would that be, uh, Nelson? Can we still record over there without too much difficulty? And she's got, well, let's see, phone line getting out. Uh, she doesn't have a landline, but I guess we could use cell over there. Huh? She does have internet there now. Okay, well, you can record, and then if we can get it out by cell, fine. If not, uh, they can get a tape later. So, uh, Gloria's house, Monday evening at 7. Monday evening at 7. For New Moon Bible Study. Well, let's get back into Corinthians. Second Corinthians, it is. Uh, Paul has complimented that church here in chapter 7 for their godly repentance and godly sorrow which caused change in their attitude and repentance and forgiveness toward a brother who had been sinning. Uh, that's, a, that's a huge thing. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And He is forgiving and ever merciful. His mercy endures forever. So God is willing to forgive whatever sins, transgressions, grievances, uh, omissions, or whatever that we do. And He forgets them and moves on. So Paul was working with these people, with whatever offenses, whatever sins, whatever uh, infringements on people's ego or vanity or whatever it might have been, uh, he was telling them that they had indeed come full circle and repented, accepted that sinner that they accepted and then totally rejected and then had trouble re-accepting once he changed. So they had gone the full route of a human being trying to deal with with wrongs or alleged wrongs or whatever uh, that we also deal with and we are to leave them behind and move on as well. I think I spent a little time talking about that. We can't live in the past. We have to move on. Uh, we have to go look forward because God looks forward. And I think I even commented how uh, 
we wonder about a lot of things that have happened on this earth, but when we're in the kingdom of God singing a new song, we may not even care to go back and ask those things at that point because everything will be new and beautiful and right and good and who cares anymore, uh, you know, what was back there. So uh, Paul is complimenting them in chapter 7, as we read last week, for having come to a truly godly repentance whereby you don't just sorrow like the world does and continue to have a bad attitude towards someone, but you actually get over it and move on uh, instead of it becoming a matter of gossip and so on uh, in the congregation, that they had apparently moved on from that, which was a good thing. Then in chapter 8, uh, he approaches another subject, which in one way might have been a test of the compliment that he had just given them, because uh, there are a couple of references in Scripture, I didn't look them up, I think you're familiar with them, where uh, Jerusalem had been under drought, and they had been uh, asked some of the churches to provide fruit and dried things and food to send to Jerusalem because uh, there was a great need there and a, a famine just as we have, I think, coming up on our nation after this summer, or sometime this summer, uh, it appears. A scarcity of food and the prices are going to go way up uh, because of the incredible floods we're having in the Midwest. Uh, there are dams being threatened in those areas. Tulsa's even threatened. Uh, Sacramento, California is under a flood watch if the Oroville Dam breaks, which it could at any moment, and flood the whole Central Valley, which would uh, destroy crops, uh, a multitude of which, a great percentage of which, feed Americans. So we're approaching these things as well. But he is writing here about uh, a need where people did not have and he was asking these Corinthians now, having repented and shown godly sorrow, now they were going to be asked to show love and concern and compassion and willingness to give to others who uh, were lacking. And that's pretty much what this whole chapter in chapter 8 is about, is about an attitude of willingness and readiness to do whatever needs to be done. So let's go into it a bit. Chapter 8, he says, Moreover, brethren, we do uh, you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Uh, kind of King James English, but we want you to know what God has done for the churches of Macedonia. How then a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their simplicity or liberality. So they had gone through a great trial, and part of it apparently was famine, physically not having enough to eat, uh, and they had a deep poverty in that sense. When you don't have food, I don't care how much money you got, you're poor. <laughs> you feel mighty poor when you don't have anything to eat. Uh, so money doesn't mean anything. That's why very soon people in this country will be throwing their money in the street because you can't eat it. It doesn't do you any good. And you are poor no matter how much gold and silver and money and whatever you have if you need something to eat. You can't eat any of those. Uh, 
So they were truly poverty-stricken. And it abounded to the riches of their liberality or generosity. So here was a people who were poor, and yet they were generous. For to their power I bear record, yes, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves. Now that's the first uh, reference he has in this chapter to being willing or ready. And we will see uh, as we go through it that he mentions that very attitude several times. They were willing. Now, you may have, you may not have. You may be able to give, you may not be able to give much. But willingness to do what you can is so very, very important. I look at us today, and I see in this tiny congregation, a lot of people who are old, who are crippled, who are almost blind or almost deaf or or almost a hundred years old <laughs> or whatever. And uh, I don't see here a capacity to do a great deal of physical work. Now, 10, 15 years ago when we started this project out here, uh, we had... A lot of people who were a lot younger then than they are now, plus some younger people that were here and so on. And we could accomplish quite a bit on a physical level in building buildings and putting in water systems and sewers and so on and so forth. But we would be very hard-pressed to do that today uh, because we simply don't have, for the most part, the capacity to do it. We have a few young, and I'm glad they're willing, <laughs> uh, but... Willingness of mind is important. And I wonder sometimes if we really grasp and understand and keep in mind that the greatest work that has ever been done on this earth is about to commence. Greater than anything that has occurred in the past by far. Even the flight from Egypt, even... Noah building the ark. Uh, Herbert Armstrong did a pretty substantial work here in the end time. But it, was, it would pale by comparison with what has to be done in the very near future. And we find ourselves old and inept. And at this point, very, very small. But we know from hundreds of scriptures put together that God is going to draw a 10% remnant of that which was in worldwide, essentially, to bring them together to build a temple, to build a city, to preach the gospel around the world for a witness for three and a half years, which will be the biggest work that has ever been done. Nothing has been taken on in the sense of worldwide that must yet be done everywhere, worldwide. Herbert Armstrong never achieved that by any means. Now, bear in mind that we look at ourselves here, and most of us are old and decrepit to one degree or another. And when that 10% remnant comes, they will have been those that were in worldwide 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, And they will also be old and decrepit 
we may have somewhere between seven and 12,000 people show up. I don't know what 10% God is speaking of, for sure. Uh, the 7,000 that hadn't bowed their knee to Baal, mentioned twice by Elijah and in the New Testament, uh, could be the number if there were 70,000 converted people in worldwide. Uh, could be 12,000 if there's a 1,000 for each tribe, and that represented the conversion factor in worldwide, 120,000 people. Or if you take the absolute most people we ever had at a feast or or could count in any way of about 150,000, but that included a lot of unconverted people coming to the feast and their cats and dogs uh, to have 150,000. So I suspect somewhere between 7 and 12 is probably the correct number. But most of them are going to be about as old as we are. And to build a temple of God, which is a big project. Remember how much time God spoke in the Old Testament about uh, the tabernacle? It was just a tent in the wilderness. And all that had to go into that, and the thousands of workers and skilled craftsmen that he gave skill to beyond their human capacities to build that Ark of the Covenant and the the tabernacle surrounding it. It's quite a project. And materials had to be gathered, and then they had to be worked. And it consumed a lot of time and energy. And then when the temple of God was built, David amassed all those materials for a long, long time. And then Solomon built the temple. And yet here at the end, God says there will be a few old men who saw worldwide at its best who will be able to see the latter temple at its best. A few old men. <laughs> well, where are the workers coming from? They're coming 10% of that which was in worldwide. And worldwide pretty much began to end in 86 when Herbert Armstrong died. And that's uh, 35 years ago now, nearly. So, everybody's getting old. So, how's this all going to be accomplished? The two witnesses themselves will probably be approaching 90 or 100 years of age. Getting close to it. So... We have lots of scriptures, don't we, that says God is going to renew us. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. We'll have the legs of deer in Isaiah 35, I think. The desert will bloom as a rose. He's going to have to do something in order for such a people to build an entire temple from scratch. The place where that temple was today is absolutely desolate. The place where Jerusalem was, it says, has been desolate for many generations. And no man would live there. And there's no man living in that site today. So, it'll have to be totally from scratch to build a city in 70 weeks. That means a lot of people, and probably a lot of equipment, to build a whole city in 70 weeks. That's a pretty good job even for a big contractor to build a whole city in a year and a half. 
or less. Huge work. God is going to have to give youth and skill. He's going to have to give craftsmanship and ability. Do we think he can do that? Do we believe those scriptures? And then the preaching around the world goes on for three and a half years with the same plagues of Egypt. Not just for a couple of weeks or three before Passover, but it goes on and on for three and a half years of no rain, uh, waters turned to blood, of whatever plagues the two want to send wherever they happen to be preaching that day. And I assume that that will be a great number of plagues around the world because the Scripture in Revelation clearly shows that the whole world is going to worship the beast. And they will not accept God's people in Zion nor those two who go out to preach about God to them will not accept them at all. And then when they finally do kill them, there will be worldwide rejoicing and partying. So that's three and a half very, very intense years that will have to occur. Now, he's going to talk a lot about a willing mind here. How willing are we? I've just been thinking, it's occurred to me off and on over a period of quite a long time, actually, but uh, it's been on my mind quite a bit lately, and I've prayed about it some. What would we do if seven or 12,000 people showed up here over a period of a month or two or three? Well, we could maybe lay them side by side on pallets over in the hall and get a hundred or two in. Maybe we could do the same in the shop, underneath the equipment shed or whatever. But you're, we, we couldn't even put down on a cot under a roof, I don't think, more than a thousand people, and that'd be kind of crowding them. What do we do with all those people? We might have enough room here if we put tents out there, uh, ten feet apart. All the way up and down the property, we might have room for that many people if you put two to a tent, average, or something like that. You know what that would cost? I've thought over the years, once in a while, maybe we ought to start stockpiling tents. But if you pay 300 bucks for a tent, times, say, four or 5,000 tents, you're looking at over a million dollars just for the tents themselves. Then you got to get water up there to them. It's part way there, but you got to get water, and you got to figure out some sanitation issues, composting toilets or something. But they're expensive if you go buy them. So, what's the solution? I feel inadequate in many, many respects. I do believe God revealed that we would have a an old mobile home community here, which we have. But, you know. Twenty-five, six, seven, eight houses is is nothing compared to seven, eight, ten, twelve thousand people. So where do we put them? Just let them hang out under a bush, or do we have a place for them? Now I suppose I could take two or three of those millions I've made here and go buy some tents, <clears throat> but since that never happened.
uh, can't do it. We barely kept the place going and paid the taxes and, and survived here with what has come in. So now to spend another million for tents, give or take a little, uh, and that's just a basic wall tent, you know, uh, for, say, 300 bucks. What's the answer? What if that happens this summer or next summer? How, how quickly can we get prepared to take care of that many people? I bought several silos full of grain uh, years ago. We didn't really know how to take care of it, and the bugs ate a lot of it. And uh, it's mostly gone. Well, I brought, I've got barrels and barrels of wheat and rice and beans over there that I bought over the years. I mean, before this place was even established, a lot of it was bought in Canada and Montana and here and there. And uh, I don't think the bugs have gotten to most of it in barrels. So we could feed quite a few people bread for a while. But things will have to change. And God says during this period of time, there in Zechariah 3, every man will have his own vine and fig tree. It's not talking about the millennium. It's talking about the time of Zerubbabel and Joshua and the 10% of people. That each will have his own vine and fig tree. Well, if we spread out into villages, as Zechariah 2 says, uh, and take the Mormon stores, as it seems to indicate in Isaiah 15 and 16, that which they've laid up will be used for God's people. Speaking of Edomites and Ammonites, and they're the ones that are here, so I assume the Mormons are mostly that. So there's stuff around, and there'll be a lot of equipment left behind when they're run out, and so on. But what about initially? I, th I think we need an answer to that. So I would ask you to pray along with me that God show us what we need to do and make it possible for us somehow to take care of all these people that are going to be coming. I mean, of the few of us who are here who are volunteers, we barely take care of the needs of those who are here. Uh, they're their roofs and their yards and their plumbing and their electric and their this and their that. Uh, fortunately, there are some willing minds around to help, and we do get things done. But uh, when you start talking about thousands of people, it's a whole different deal. Now, it may be they can do a lot of work to help take care of themselves. They may be able to put up their dwellings, but where do they get their parts? They come running ahead of the northern army, and probably a suitcase or a backpack or whatever they got with them. And some might be able to drive and bring more than that, but we'll see how that works out. But they're going to get here with next to nothing, I suspect. How are we going to take care of them? Now, we've got a place. I think God gave us sufficient acreage for us to initially take care of them for a short while. Then it's going to turn into villages, and there'll be a migration to Jerusalem to begin working on the temple and so on. But in the meantime, we have a logistics problem in taking care of that many people. And I don't have a solution, don't have a bank account anywhere near big enough to uh, buy that many tents or whatever temporary shelter is needed. Well, maybe they wouldn't like tents, but uh, okay, go buy travel trailers for twenty, thirty, forty thousand apiece. 
and buy four, five, six thousand of those. Then you're talking many, many multiples of millions, plus hooking them up to electric and water and everything they'd need. So uh, this is not an unsubstantial problem. Now, Paul is addressing churches here, uh, church or churches, which had lack of food. And he goes through great detail in explaining them, to them how they need to have a willing and a ready mind to take care of the needs of others. So I'm simply taking what he's writing here and expanding it to where we sit today with very soon thousands of people showing up at our doorstep needing help and sustenance and protection while they prepare their minds, hearts, and willingness to dedicate their lives to building a temple, a city, and supporting a worldwide work for three and a half years after that of preaching and teaching around the world. Uh, this is a monumental project we're talking about. Bigger than anything you'll read about. It's a lot bigger than Paul was talking about here, where they had gone around and started small churches that were meeting in homes and ministries traveling to them back and forth to try to take care of them. That was small potatoes compared to what we're facing here very soon. No, Pasadena never had seven, eight, ten thousand, twelve thousand people there. Uh, at the most, with all the congregations around coming in on Pentecost or something, we could fill the Pasadena Auditorium. I think that held 3,500, 4,000, something like that. With all the congregations in Southern California, uh, we had, I think that big tent in Big Sandy may have held like 12,000, as I recall. So if you were ever there with that huge meeting, uh, that might represent within reason what we're expecting to be here, and not just for eight days, but from now on, and taking care of them until God expands it. Because it says clearly in Scripture that they're going to say there's not enough space. We need more room. So when they get here, we're not going to have field upon field with lots of room for expansion and a lot of room for everybody. Now, that's what God wants. He says in Isaiah 5, Woe to him that builds house to house and even field to field so that a man has no room. We're far closer together here than God finds uh, desirable even having an acre apiece. It's not enough room. When it says house to house and even field to field, there needs to be fields between houses. A lot of room. That's God's way of setting up a society. And that's the way it'll be in the millennium. Now, when they first come in, it's going to be initially compressed. And then they're going to say, there's not enough room, we need more space. And then God, he says, will have villages, plural, and some will go up to Jerusalem to build. Others will be support. I could go to scriptures on all these things. Uh, I think it said one out of ten would go up to Jerusalem to actually do the building. So that would still be several thousand, maybe. One or two or three, who knows. 
Anyway, there's going to have to be a lot of willingness, and God is going to have to bequeath upon us a time of restitution and renewal so that old people can accomplish what he has to do. And look how beautiful that is. What a beautiful plan. The God assembles a bunch of 60, 70, 80, 90-year-old people who were in worldwide decades ago, and he renews them so that they can do a mighty project. That has never been done in the history of the earth. Not even for Noah, not even for the people marching out of Mitzrayim, not anything you can look back to even in Scripture shows God giving people the youth to go do a work like this that needs to be done. The closest thing I can think of was Abraham and Sarah having a child when they were 90 and 100 years old. And he renewed Abraham enough so that after Sarah died, he married a woman about 100 years younger than him and had, what, seven, eight more kids with Keturah. Whatever the number was, I forget. So he must have been pretty well renewed to, to go ahead and live another 75 years and have a big family after Sarah died. So maybe that's the closest thing akin to what he's going to do with not just Abraham and Sarah, but thousands of people. So there is precedent back there with Abraham and Sarah, especially Abraham. And we are Abraham's children. And he tells us we have a, a mighty work to do. So, at the introduction of this chapter, let's keep that in mind as we read what Paul says about a congregation being willing. It's all a matter of the mind. It doesn't have to do with age or health. It has to do with the mind. The widow who gave the might did not have much to give. But it was a matter of the mind that she had. She had a mind to give everything she had. That's the kind of mind God is looking for in us. A commitment so deep that we are willing to give everything we are, everything we have, to Him and His purposes, even to our very lives. And at the climax and end of this greatest work, far beyond Herbert Armstrong, that has to be done, the very leaders are going to be called upon to give their lives at the end. So nothing has changed. It's all the same. We have to be willing to give everything. Now, Christ is our example. He gave everything. He gave up eternal life. He gave up the beauty and peace and love of the heavenly angels and the mighty heavenly chorus. And no pain and no tears to come down here and live a life on this physical earth and became a man of sorrows watching what was going on. And then he had to empty himself entirely and completely and give up his life for you and me, who are certainly not worthy of it. He gave all. 
He was of a ready and a willing mind. And that is the mind that God is looking for. That is the mind that Paul is encouraging with these people. And that's why he says they were willing of themselves in the end of verse 3. Now going on, praying us with much entreaty that we should receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So he says we in the ministry are willing to give up our autonomy, our desire to go do whatever it is we might wish to do, uh, what did the, uh, the disciples who became apostles want to do? Well, I think I'm going fishing. <laughs> you know, Christ is dead. I'm going fishing. That's what I'm used to. That's what I did for a living. So that's what they wanted to do. Maybe one wanted to go back to collecting taxes. I don't know. But the fishermen wanted to go fish. And... Paul wanted to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees and of the high muckety-muck of the Jews. And he gave it all up and said, I will minister to the saints like I was told after I got struck blind and called to do that. So he's saying, be of a willing mind not to put your own desires and wishes and goals and purposes and dreams ahead of what God wants done. His work, here at the end, is the only thing important on the face of the earth. What Satan and the beast are doing is totally unimportant. What the Bilderbergers are doing in Montreux, Switzerland today, as they meet, is totally unimportant by comparison to what God has that needs done. Theirs is in vain. It will last a short while when they finally get it off the ground as iron and miry clay and will be deposed entirely when Christ returns. So it's all vanity and ego. Guess who's there attending? We have this populist president who said he's going to make America great again and return the power to the people. And his son-in-law and top advisor is there meeting with the Bilderbergs this week. Hmm. So much for draining the swamp. We got swamp rats over there meeting with the Bilderbergers who are top advisors to our president. So I'm not taking sides here, Democratic or Republican. The whole shooting match is worthless. All of them. And you are the only ones who have a clue of what God is about to do. So we, you and I, need to be willing to give up whatever personal goals and desires and wishes and dreams we have as humans and put our hearts and minds into God's work. And this they did, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the eternal and to us by the will of God. So we have to give ourselves to God. We are His servants. We are His slaves. Uh, we are purchased. We are bought with a price. That was His blood, His death. 
So we are not of ourselves. When we accepted him as our Savior, we committed ourselves completely and totally to him. Our life is not our own. He created a new life in us, as Paul recently said that we just read. A new creation, a new creature. So what we might have been or wanted to be in the past no longer counted. Now we're here to be his slaves, his servants, his ambassadors, to do what he wants done, not what we want done. So we have to pack up our little hopes and dreams and put them aside and accomplish what God has for us to do. That's where we are. That's why we came here. Verse 6, insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. So he's saying, Titus came to you, and he's there with the same purpose and mind that I have, that we all be willing to serve God and put him first and his work first, and whatever needs done. And in this case, they needed food for some people who were in need. Uh, verse 7, Therefore, as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. He says, I've seen an attitude in you that is good. I've seen repentance. I see these spiritual qualities in you. So he says, Now answer the call of duty with a willing mind and show the love that you claim to have, and that I believe you have, the sincerity of that love. For you know the grace of our Lord Emmanuel, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. I already really said that. He had everything in the universe, and he gave it all up, and became very poor. So poor that as he died, he had no clothes whatsoever, he had no food whatsoever. He had nothing. Totally indigent. And nails through his body. He was rich. But for you and me, he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might be rich. He did that so that we might share his riches with him. Now, it's come full circle. He is back at his father's throne. He has everything he had. And what else does he have beyond what he had before he came here? He is richer today than he was before he came. Same number of angels. Same number of 24 elders. Same sea of glass. Same father. How is he richer now than he was then? He has everything back that he had. He has something more than what he had. Do you realize before he came here, he had no children. He had no sons and daughters. 
He had no girlfriend. And he certainly didn't have a wife. Now, he has begotten children by the tens of thousands who are going to be his sons and daughters. He has children by the billions who ultimately will become his sons and daughters. He has been selecting 144,000 people from Adam and Eve or Enoch on that he is going to marry. So he's going to have a bride. He's going to have a wife. That's a whole lot more than he had when he first came here, right? A whole lot more. So that, he says here, you might also be rich. Well, he is, he is becoming richer now than he was before he came. And by going back and now having everything he had before he came here, he is now inviting you and me to come and share everything that he has. The angels... The new song, Only We, as 144,000 can sing. A host of heavenly angels in the background, humming along or whatever. The sea of glass. Capacity to travel throughout the universe. And to live with those who created this earth so beautifully for us. To reign with them forevermore. Now, is that rich or what? And with that richness and those blessings will also come no tears, no fears, no pain, no sorrow, no death. Nothing bad will ever happen again. Now, there are a lot of people who consider themselves rich on this earth and they have millions or billions of dollars. But you know what? They suffer relationship problems and divorces they suffer financial losses, they suffer bad health, and eventually they suffer death. doesn't matter how many billions they got, the same thing happens to them all. But we're going to have riches way beyond anything that anybody on this earth has ever experienced and have them forever with no problems whatsoever. Riches of that kind are beyond our comprehension. But that's really what Paul's saying here. He came and became poor that we might become rich. Now herein I give my advice. Here's what I have to say now that I've mentioned that, he says. For this is expedient for you who have begun before not only to do, but also to be forward a year ago. Now forward here doesn't mean presumptuous if you look the word up. It means willing or to move ahead as leaders. In other words, to be of a willing mind is someone who's willing to charge forth and do, to accomplish, to not stand back, but take the lead in doing what needs to be done. That's the kind of attitude that God wants. It's what Paul was encouraging here. So he says, now therefore perform the doing of it. Or to use a modern expression, uh, 
the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You may say you're willing, you may say you want to, you may say you have a ready mind, but now let's see you do it. When somebody tells me, well, I'll try to do that, might as well figure it ain't going to get done. If they're going to try, that means they're not going to put too much effort into it. Now, if somebody says, I will do that, then I have a much higher level of confidence that it's going to happen. Because they have stated a much greater commitment than I'll try. (coughs) I'll try is a very low level of commitment. How will you feel if Christ said to you, why didn't you overcome? Well, I tried. He's not after you trying to overcome. He's after you overcoming and putting your heart into it. So he's saying, a willing mind, have your heart in it, prove your love. Okay, you say you're willing, now do it, perform it. That as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which you have. So don't just say you're going to get her done. And that's what he's going to say to his people here at the end. I got a temple that needs built. I got a city that needs built. I have a world that needs to be warned. Get her done. You say you're willing. You say you're converted. You say your heart is in God and His work? Okay, prove it. Do it. For if there be first a willing mind, it is accepted according to that a man has, and not according to that he has not. So, he says the first step here is to have a willing mind. Willing to do. And then, it's not going to be judged on what you have or don't have. It's going to be your willingness and your effort to do what you can. But by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be equality. In other words, you need to be willing to help others, and they in turn need to be doing what they can to be willing to help you. Or as we say, back scratching all the way. Everybody helping everybody else. And we're equal in service in that sense. So he says... We're not talking about how much you have that you might be able to give. We're talking about your willingness of mind to do everything you can to help with the project that needs done. And then it comes down to a matter of talents and abilities and using and developing the ones that you particularly have. Didn't Christ make it very clear? Some have one, some have five, some have ten. For the one who has ten, he's still got to have the willingness to perform with that skill. For the one who only has one, is he going to go bury it in the ground? 
Or is he going to show willingness to use it for the purpose at hand? He says, I'll judge you based on what you have to do with. And there's where the equality comes. Is that everyone be 100% ready and willing to do whatever needs to be done. As it is written, he that has gathered much has nothing over, and he that has gathered little had no lack. Now he's quoting from Exodus 16:18 there where God sent the manna. And Moses told them, each of you go out and collect what you need to eat. Don't take too much. Don't take too little. Do it according to the number of people you have in your household so that everyone has enough to eat, but nobody gathered too much. He says, so that there be nothing left over in the morning. So he says, legitimately, realistically, assess how much you need and go get that much and be taken care of. But thanks be to God, which put the same earnest care into the heart of Titus for you. He says, the same God that provided the manna and told you to take all you needed is the same one who is working in the heart of Titus. Same God, different circumstances. Here they had need, just as they had need out there in the desert, and God provided manna. Now, they had lost their ready and willing mind out there, hadn't they? They had become murmurers and gripers and complainers and negative. And this isn't going to work out. And then God sent manna and says, okay, how do you like that? He sent water. Okay, how do you like that? Did you think I brought you out here to die? Well, yeah, you did. That's what you said. No, he would take care of them. And he said, Titus has the same attitude. You know what? I'm not just speculating when I say God is going to take care of us. He has said, and it is as his promise to Noah and the rainbow to him, that he's going to do this end time work. It has to be done. Now, if you and I do not have a willing and ready mind, he'll find somebody that does. Okay? Because he is going to do it. That's the same God that provided manna and quail and water. And he says, Titus worships that same God, and he has the heart to serve you. For indeed he accepted the exhortation... So, Titus had been exhorted to serve, to give, to help, to be uh, a representative of God's ministry to serve the people. And he had accepted that exhortation to do just that. But being more forward of his own accord, he went to you. So he says, we exhorted him to do the work. We exhorted him maybe to go here or go there. But he, of his own mind, was forward or willing or took the leadership, not having been instructed to, to go on to Corinth and see you. So he did it on his own. He saw a need, and he took care of it. Now, there's a ready and willing attitude that, that Paul is using here 
to show what, Paul, what Titus had done and been willing to do on his own. And we have sent with him the brother, doesn't say who, whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. So they sent someone who uh, had stood out uh, in all the churches as being a servant and willing to give of himself. And not that only, but who was also chosen of the churches to travel with us with this same grace or pardon or love and uh, ready mind to help, which is administered by us to the glory of the same Lord and declaration of your ready mind. So he says, I'm on board, Titus is on board, this other minister's on board, and you need to have a ready mind to help. And this was basically a food project, it sounds like. Avoiding this, they'll note that no man should blame us and this abundance which is administered by us. He says, you're going to do this. We may be here to administer it, to deliver it, to see that it gets where it needs to be gone. But we're not going to take the credit. Providing for honest things, not only in the sight of the eternal, but also in the sight of men. So as we're up above board here, we're not trying to take, we're not trying to steal, we're not trying to remove your goods from you, and he'll talk about that, I think, in the next chapter. Uh, we're just here to try to help and to lay it on you to have willing and ready minds to help those who are in need. So, their Christianity was undergoing a test here. It had already been tested in forgiving the man who had sinned and accepting him back and quit bad-mouthing him and moving forward. <clears throat> and now tested in if they had true, sincere love to help. Uh, verse 22, And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have oftentimes proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent upon the great confidence which I have in you. So he's sending someone who is a very diligent person to help gather uh, what you have as an offering to others in need. We are called upon to be here, to be hosts for people coming in from all over the world to serve God and to fulfill His purposes and to do His work. Now, Herbert Armstrong was used to call many over many decades. Now, those that were called over a long period of time, God is going to choose among them many called, few chosen, 10%. And that's not going to happen over a period of decades. But they're going to be here in a very short period of time, just ahead of the northern army as financial collapse occurs in this nation and around the world, and this, then this nation is taken into captivity. They're going to be just ahead of the invading force and barely get here in time to be protected and to do the work of God and have a wall of fire around it 
so that it can happen. So we better be of ready and willing minds when God causes all this to happen. It doesn't seem to be too far away. We've waited a long time, but I don't think we have much longer to wait. Then he says in verse 23, Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow help concerning you. He says, some of you may not have known Titus. You don't know who he is and what his reputation is. But he says, uh, he's my partner. He's my brother. He's my fellow helper. Uh, I'm sending him there to help you. Or our brethren be inquired of, they are the messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. So he says, anybody I send there to help you is going to be someone that I trust to be a follower of Christ and to be doing his work and to help you. So he says, wherefore, show you to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. He says, I've been telling people, you Corinthians have repented, you've changed, you've overcome, you've grown, you're committed to doing God's way and His will and His work, and I've been spreading this about you. He says, prove me right, not wrong. Accept uh, those that I'm sending and do what we're asking of you. Now, we didn't get into that, and we're kind of running a little short of time. I don't want to get into the next chapter with what little time we have. But he's going to show uh, more clearly that there was physical need, and he was asking them to supply that. But he goes through quite a bit here, doesn't he, about uh, spiritual attitude and willingness to give of ourselves in the same way that Christ gave of himself for us. To be living sacrifices. That's what he implores us to be there in Romans 12. That we be a living sacrifice. Not a dead one. <clears throat> if you're dead, you're, you, you don't do much good. You, you don't do nothing. You're just dead. But if you're alive, you can do good. And a, a, a live dog is better than a dead lion, so, uh, Paul said. I mean, Solomon. Uh, Solom- Solomon said there in the book of Ecclesiastes, I'll get it right. So we're alive. And maybe we're not lions, maybe we're just dogs, but we're still alive. So let's be about our Father's work, and let's be praying. Because I kid you not, what I described at the beginning is coming and coming soon. And Christ is going to need every one of us to be everything we can be, to do what needs to be done, along with those thousands that he's going to send to help us get it done. He sent us out here to do the initial preparation. He gave us a piece of land big enough somehow to contain them for a short while, and we need to be able to give them shelter and food. Now, is God going to provide some of that supernaturally, or does he expect us to do some of it? I don't know that I have all the answers to those questions. In fact, I don't have the answer to some of those questions. So we need to be praying, and praying diligently, realizing that we are right on the cusp, the edge, the tipping point, 
where this is going to happen very shortly, and we are going to be called upon to take care of thousands of people and help them come here, get settled, and ready to go to work. Now, our own minds need to be ready, willing, and prepared for this to happen. And we need to be praying now that God will give us the skills, the capacities, the abilities, the minds, the attitudes, and the wherewithal to do what needs to be done. That He will give us the answers to a housing need, answers to a toilet need, answers to water needs, answers to those things a person needs to live. Now, when they went out into the desert, when they came out of Mitzrayim, I don't suppose they had a lot of modern tents, but somehow they may have used animal hides and so on to build tents. And there were upwards of three and a half million of them. And the way the toilet problem was handled then was they took a little shovel. They didn't get it at Ace Hardware, but it says a spade there in Deuteronomy. I don't know exactly how good a shovel it was. But they were to go clear outside the camp to do their business and cover it up with the spade so Christ didn't walk upon it when he walked through the camp. Now, if there's three and a half million people there and they all have their tent space and you've got to walk clear outside, what if you're in right in the middle? You better go before the urge gets too great. That's all I can say for you. Now, we're not going to have anywhere near that many people, so it won't be near as big a problem. But maybe we need a supply of shovels. I don't know. Or maybe we need some other method. But they're not going to have animal skins when they get here to build their own tent. What's the answer? I would be praying. I am. And I ask you to pray with me that God show us how we need to do, what we need to do, when we need to do it, and to provide that which we need in order to do it. Whatever it entails. It's a serious matter. You know, I can take in a few here. You might take in three or four or five in your living room. And the rest of you say, well, too bad for you. No, they've got to be taken care of. There's got to be some way that is not today obvious. When they went out into that desert... It was not to them in any way obvious. There was no water, so it came out of a rock. That was not an answer that they would have come up with. Hey Moses, why don't you speak to, or better yet, strike that rock and get us some water? Yeah, right. We don't have any food. What are we going to do? No one of them had a bright idea. I think we'll ask God for some manna. And when it, when it did come, they says, what's it? That's what manna means. What's it? No, they didn't think of that either. Something God came up with. Then they thought, manna's not good enough. We need something with it. We need meat. Nobody thought to ask for quail, but boy, here they came. 
God knows. He has the answers. I don't, you don't, to some of the things that we are going to have to deal with. So therefore, what do we do? We ask God to show us the things we need to know to do the job he's given us to do. First, a ready and willing mind and attitude to do whatever we can to help his purposes. Then ask him to show us what needs to be done. Think about that. Pray about that. Because we need some answers.